so glad that we can be here today, and I know that you are as well, and uh, it's good to be able to worship God together. We certainly want to wish all of our mothers a very happy Mother's Day and hope that uh, this day goes very well for you. It's good to uh, be able to celebrate and express our gratitude for all of the things that our mothers do for us. That's certainly fitting and appropriate, and we are glad to do it. Every, uh, the key to every healthy relationship, as you well know, is communication. And if people as a whole hadn't realized that before, certainly or surely we must now, you may not have heard of Zoom before the month of March, but chances are by now you have. Zoom, of course, is a video conferencing service, and the numbers that it uh, published recently said that its growth has been something to the tune of 30 times since the month of March, 30 times their normal. In fact, the amount of normal daily users of that software increased from about 10 million a day in December to now currently 200 million a day. At least that was uh, toward the end of the month of March. And this is because people recognize that there is no healthy existence without communication. And that medium helps to make communication possible. I want us to stop for a moment and I want us to think about communication today from the standpoint of God. And I want you to imagine what it would be like if there were a God who created people and never communicated with them at all. What would that be like? How would we know anything about him? What would we know about his character? How would we know what is necessary to please him or to serve him? Or how would we know what displeases him? And the answer is that we couldn't, we wouldn't. Because God cannot, uh, nothing can be known of God unless God chooses to reveal that information to those whom he has created. And certainly we could be thankful, should be thankful, that we have a God who has communicated with his creation. And he's communicated with his creation in a number of different ways. He has communicated or revealed himself in a very general way in the creation, in the created order, like Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and following, those Gentiles, Paul says, who didn't believe in God were without excuse because the invisible things uh, of God have been, are seen in the created order, he says. So we have the general revelation of God in the created order, but we also have what we refer to as the special revelation of God. And that's talking about the Word of God, the Bible that we hold in our hands. And the Bible teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 10 that God has revealed himself in his Word. The Bible in that passage and in that context talks to us about the fact that no one can know what's in the mind of man save the spirit of a man. And in the same way, no one can know what's in the mind of God unless the Spirit of God reveals the information that is in his mind. And so when we open up our Bibles and we read from its pages, what we're actually reading is the mind of God that has been revealed so that we might read it and understand it and so that we might apply it and live according to what it teaches. But now as we turn our attention to the passage that was read for us a little while ago, Hebrews chapter 1, I want us to notice 
that God has also revealed himself in his Son. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, this familiar passage, the Hebrews writer says that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds. I want us to stop for a moment this morning and think about some of the very important points that we find in the book of Hebrews. This book, as you probably know, is a book that is all about the superiority of Christ and Christianity. We read in this book about how Jesus is superior to angels. We read about how he has a superior priesthood and is a superior high priest. How he has ushered in a superior covenant and a superior sanctuary and a superior sacrifice. And on and on this book will go to describe for us the fact that Jesus and New Testament Christianity are far superior to anything else. But in particular, the Mosaic Law. But all of that begins in the first four verses of this chapter, uh, of chapter one of this book, by the Hebrews writer pointing out that Jesus is superior to the prophets. He talks about this in verses one and two. God, at time past, spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but now in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. So the main point of the first couple of verses is that he's superior to the prophets. But what I want us to see this morning is in these three or four verses, there are actually seven small but very important points that uh, the Hebrews writer makes that will testify, that will prove to the superiority of Jesus, not just over the prophets, but over anything and everything that has been created or imagined. Let's notice these together as we work our way through Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and following. Notice, first of all, that the superiority of Jesus is seen in the fact that he is God's fi- the final revelation of God to humanity. Look at these passages that we've noticed already closer, and let's work our way through them one little statement and word at a time. He says that God spoke in various times and in various ways. The literal idea of that is many portions and many ways. And what he is talking about is the fact that in the pages of God's word, particularly over the span of the Old Testament, we see a gradual unfolding of divine revelation. And that simply means that God did not choose to unload every ounce of information in his mind in one place to one person and at one time. But rather, over the course of human history, God revealed his will in small portions to different people over an extended period of time. That's what he means when he says God spoke in various times and in various ways. But then he tells us to whom God spoke. He said God spoke in various times and in various ways unto the fathers. And the fathers are reference to the patriarchs and the whole of the Jewish people through the end of the Mosaic Dispensation. And then he tells us the vehicle by the prophets. God spoke in various ways and in various times unto the fathers, and he did it by the prophets, literally in the prophets. And a prophet, of course, is not just someone who foretells the future, but rather he's someone who foretells. He speaks on behalf of God. And so these prophets were literally the spokesmen of God. So the Hebrews writer looks to the past. This is what God has done in the past, but now he turns his attention to the present and even to the future. 
And he says, now God in these last days, that's talking about the messianic age, Acts 2 and verse number 17, he says that he has spoken to us through his son. That tells me that the progressive nature of revelation ends at Jesus Christ. There is no progression beyond him and what he says. The Bible tells us in Luke 16, verse 16, that the law was until John, but uh, at the coming of Christ, the kingdom of God began to be spoken and preached about. In John chapter 1 and verse 17, the Bible tells us that uh, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that grace and truth didn't exist before Jesus Christ. What it does mean, though, is that the ultimate expression of the grace of God and the truth of God is seen in Jesus Christ. The same could be said about John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's not that God didn't love before Jesus came into the world. It's that Jesus is the greatest and the ultimate expression of the love of God. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 10 to 12 describes the prophets desiring to look into the things that they were, they were prophesying not knowing that they were actually ministering not to themselves, but unto us, unto those who would come after. And the reason is because their work and their teaching and preaching was pointing forward to Christ and to the cross and to his work. So God has now spoken to us in these last days through his Son. And there are many implications of this. Let me share with you just two. First of all, there is the implication of finality. The grammar of this passage, interestingly enough, it speaks about something that has been done at a fixed time in the past. And so the idea is that God has in the past spoken through his son and the implications of that speaking in the past are to be ongoing throughout all time. It's finality. It's final. He spoke through his son and now it's finished. Do you remember passages like Jude verse 3? The Bible says that we're to contend for the faith that was once for all given to the saints. Second Thessal, excuse me, Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God, the apostle Paul says. And so the point is that the word that we're holding in our hands, the Bible that we have, it's complete and it's full and there's no longer any latter-day revelation. God does not continue to speak to people. The Holy Spirit does not continue to speak to people outside of what is revealed in the word of God. There's finality to the revelation. But there's also, secondly, there is the implication of authority. Do you remember Matthew chapter 17 and verse number 5? This is the Mount of Transfiguration. And you remember that as we see that scene unfolding, we have before us, we have Elijah, and we have Moses, and we have Jesus. And God simply says, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. And so the point is, you're no longer to listen to Moses, and you're no longer to listen to the prophets. They're not speaking with authority and finality, but my son is, Jesus is, his word carries weight. Jesus said in John 12 and verse number 48, the words that I speak, the same shall judge you in the last day. And this point about the finality and the authority of the revelation of Jesus Christ is a point that is going to be hammered home in the remainder of this section and throughout the book as a whole. But we need to move on to a second point. So our first is simply this. The superiority of Jesus is seen in the fact that Jesus is the final revelation of God to humanity. 
There is no revelation to come after him. The words of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the final word from God. There's nothing more to come. Second, the superiority of Jesus is seen in the fact that he is the divinely appointed heir. He says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Likely the Hebrews writer had Psalm 2 and verse number 8 in mind. That psalm is a messianic psalm, and it is a psalm that pictures the victory of King Jesus Christ on the cross and over his enemies. And in verse number 8 of that psalm, it says this, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. The heirship of Jesus Christ is simply a natural consequence of his sonship. And what's interesting is that when we read passages like Colossians 1 and verse 16 and Romans 11 verse 36 and a number of others, Revelation chapter 5, that the Bible will declare that all things were not only made by him, but that they were also made for him. All things made by him and for him, Colossians 1 and verse 16, and it gets better. Because in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, the Bible describes those of us who are children of God as being joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Jesus is superior. How do I know that? Because he is the divinely appointed heir. All things are given into his hand. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and following. All things were made by him and for him, and we're joint heirs with him. Romans 8, verse 14 to 17. The superiority of Jesus is seen, number three, in the fact that he is the agent of creation. He's been made heir of all things, according to verse 2, but notice the end of the verse, through whom, that is, through Jesus, he also made the worlds. Through Jesus, he, that is, God, also made the worlds. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 16, again, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all were created through him and for him. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1 and verse number 3, that uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things that were made were made through him. You see, the teaching of Scripture is, if you want to envision it in these terms or think about it in these terms, that God the Father, God the Father is the architect, but God the Son, Christ, He is the agent. Notice, through Him, God made the worlds. Through Him, God created powers and principalities and all of the other things that have been created. The superiority of Jesus is seen not only in the fact that He is a divine heir and that God has spoken to Him finally, but that he is the agent also of creation. Now I want you to notice with me a couple of things following in Hebrews chapter 1. The superiority of Jesus is also seen in the fact that he is the manifestation of God in the flesh. We're going to take two things here in verse number 3 and combine them together in one. Notice the two statements. He says, first of all, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Let's divide those in two and look at them closely. When the Hebrews writer describes Jesus as the brightness of his glory, that means the brightness of God's glory, he is describing literally this radiance that shines forth from the source of light. So the idea is that God is the source of light. 
and that Jesus is the radiance that is shining forth from that source. Think about the picture of the glory of God that we see presented to us in some passages in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 15 to 17, for example, we have a situation in which the glory of God rested upon Mount Sinai for six days, and then on the seventh day, God called for Moses to come up into the mount, and there he received the law. In Exodus chapter 33, however, God, or Moses rather, says to God in verse number 18, show me your glory. And God invites him and hides him in the cleft of the rock. And God says, I'll come before you, but uh, you can only see my backside because no one can see my face and live. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18 to 23. In Leviticus chapter 9, verse 5 and 6, and in verse 23, the glory of God is revealed to the people in an indirect sort of a way whenever the fire came from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. So the glory of God. It's always been there. God has never been without glory, but it's been seen partially in different ways throughout the history of humanity. But listen to what John chapter 1 and verse number 14 says about Jesus. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the brightness of his glory, the brightness of the Father's glory, according to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 3. With Jesus, the Word becoming flesh, man has the ability to see God's glory in a way that he's never before been able to see. But the Hebrews writer goes on, and he says also that Jesus is the express image of his person. And it may surprise you to know that the word image actually comes from a Greek word that gives us our word character. And so the point that he's making is that Jesus is an exact representation or an exact engraving of the Father. In Colossians 1 and verse number 15, the Apostle Paul will make a similar point. He will say he is the image of the invisible God. And that word image is the word that gives us our word icon. He's the icon of the invisible God. You put all of this together, and what does it teach us? It teaches us that if we want to know about God, what we need to do is simply look at his son. Because his son is an exact image, an exact representation, an icon, an engraving. If we want to know something about how God loves, we look at how Christ loved. If we want to know something about how he thinks, we look at how Christ thought. If we want to know something about his grace and his mercy and his compassion, and the list goes on, we simply need to look at Christ Jesus. Jesus said in John 8, I always do those things that please the Father. And our desire, of course, to uh, kind of uh, chase a, a spare point here, our desire should always be to please the Father. We look at Jesus and we know that he is the, he is the word, the God in the flesh. That he is the exact representation of the Father. Certainly he knows what's required to please him. So if I want to please him, what should I do? I should look at him and do as he did. Think as he thought and speak as he spoke. And uh, care like he cared and love like he loved and so on. Jesus is superior because he is the manifestation of God in the flesh. He is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And in John 1 and verse 18, John wrote, No man has at any time seen the Father, but the Son, he's revealed the Father. And so Jesus would say to Thomas in John chapter 14 
As he talked about the fact that he had been with them and that they had seen the Father with him, Thomas would say, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus would simply say, have I been with you so long and you're not connecting the dots and so you're saying, Lord, show us the Father? Have you not recognized that the Father, the Word become flesh, has been with you the entire time? The superiority of Jesus is seen in the fact that he is the manifestation of God in the flesh. But look further at Hebrews chapter 1. Not only is he the final revelation of God to humankind, not only is he... Uh, Not only is he the divinely appointed heir and the agent of creation and the manifestation of God in the flesh, but he is also the sustainer of all things. The Hebrews writer says in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 3 that he upholds all things by the word of his power. The upholding all things has to do with the fact that he holds everything to its uh, intended purpose or its designed purpose. And it says that he does it through his word or through the power of his word. The idea is his powerful or his enabling word. Read with that Colossians 1 verse 17. So Jesus is the agent of creation. It is through him and for him that all things have been created. And yet he is also the one that holds it all together. That can be said of no one else. Next, number six. The superiority of Jesus is seen in the fact that he purged our sins. The Bible says as much in Hebrews 1 verse 3 that literally he purged our sins. And the point that it's striving home is the fact that Jesus accomplished what no one else could. And that is that he provided the once for all time solution for sin. Remember what John said when he saw Jesus coming in John 1, verse 25. Behold the Lamb of God, excuse me, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And remember that there is a world of meaning that is involved in that designation, the Lamb of God. It includes within it this, uh, all of the Old Testament imagery and command and practice of sacrifice and all of the blood that was shed by all of those innocent animals to cover but not permanently deal with the sins of humanity. And yet now we're not looking simply at a lamb, we're looking at the lamb who has come to deal with, all, with the problem of sin for all people for all time. Listen to what Hebrews 7, 26 and 27 says about him. For such a high priest was fitting for us, the Hebrews writer says, who is holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. What's the difference between the human priesthood and the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Jesus? One of them is that under the Levitical priesthood, the high priest was a man and he had to offer sacrifice for his own sins and he did it every year and daily for uh, the people uh, whom he served. But Jesus, he committed no sin and he only had to offer a sacrifice of himself once. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22, the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so in verse number 28 of the same chapter, the scripture says, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And going on into chapter 10 verse 4 and following, we have this contrast with the blood of bulls and goats that cannot take away sin. And so the necessary sacrifice of Christ, beginning in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number five. And again, the point is Jesus did what no one else could. 
Moses couldn't do it. The prophets couldn't do it. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. The only one who could do it, that's Jesus Christ. And so in that point, we see his supremacy and his superiority. But finally, we see the superiority of Jesus in the fact that he sits on the throne. The Hebrews writer says at the end of Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 3, that after having purged our sins, he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Go back sometime in your Bibles and study the sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 32 and 33, verse 36. Notice the, the, uh, the uh, climax, the important point that is made in those passages. That Jesus, the one whom you, the Jews, on the day of Pentecost, Peter says, has crucified. Now he has been resurrected, he has been risen, and God has made him both Lord and Christ. And he is now set down at the throne on the right hand of God. And there are a number of implications of that fact. It, in, it implicates number, uh, indicates rather number one, authority. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 22. It indicates honor, Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 11. Every tongue will confess and every knee will bow and, uh, excuse me, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it is also embedded within it this sense of finality. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 12 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, his work was finished. And he now permanently occupies this position uh, uh, at the, on the throne at the right hand of God because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's the head over his church, which is his body, Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians 1 and verse number 18. So we honor him and we obey him and we submit to his rule and his power and his authority. And that can be said of no one else. The superiority, the supremacy of Jesus, it is seen in these seven things. He is God's final revelation to humanity. He is the divinely appointed heir. He is the agent of creation and the manifestation of God in the flesh and the sustainer of all things. And he is the one who purged our sins. And he is the one who sits on his throne. These three passages at the beginning of this book, they set the tone for the remainder of this book, where over and over again the Hebrews writer will re-emphasize Christ is greater, Christ is better, Christ is superior. Because he wanted the audience, those Jewish Christians contemplating leaving the faith and going back into Judaism, to be overwhelmed and impressed by the greatness of Jesus Christ. And we should be impressed by it as well. The only thing that's left to be asked is a personal question for each one of us, and that is, is this supremacy, or maybe we should say it this way, is, um, am I honoring the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the way that I live my life? Am I obeying him, submitting to his will, and serving him, and striving to be more like him on a daily basis? If not, why not? The Lord's invitation is offered, and there may be someone this morning who's not yet submitted themselves to this superior, this supreme Savior. If you haven't, then what are you waiting for? The Bible tells us that in having shed his blood, this plan of salvation has been made possible to all humanity. 
to believe in the deity of Jesus and repent of sins and confess faith and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. And the Bible says that when a person is willing to do that, God adds, excuse me, adds him to the church, which is the body of Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning you've not done that, but you'd like to. We'd love to help you to do it. But maybe this morning you are a Christian, and as you stop and you examine and take stock of your life, you're think, you, maybe it becomes clear that there are other things in this world that have taken a supreme place of importance in your life, and it's not Christ Jesus. He's been dethroned, if you will. May I suggest the sentiment of 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify the Lord Jesus in your heart. That means give him a separate place. Give him a place of honor. Put him on the throne. And if we can help you to do it, then we invite you to come forward and let your need be known while we stand and sing the invitation song together.